you're listening to I Might Be Wrong, a podcast hosted by myself, Rich Needham, and my co-host, Henry Salmon. Welcome. You're listening to I Might Be Wrong. I'm Rich. I'm Henry. Hello, Rich. We are still recording at yours, which is lovely. Yeah, still. Then back to backs. Yeah. And uh, we have had pizzas. We have delicious pizza. Thank you for that. We still have beer. We have plenty of beer, although it's getting quite strong now. Yeah. What percentage is this? Just a smidge under 10. Go careful then. <laughs> well, in fact, I, what am I saying? I'm the one who should be going careful because <laughs> I keep drinking this like lager and it never ends well. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I'm slowing you down by refusing to pour the next one until I'm done with this one. Well, if it's impairing me, it's probably a good thing because it's your choice. So you can do all the talking on this episode <laughs> and I'll just sit here in a beer fueled haze. Perfect. Who have we got? So I am dragging us back to the very start of the millennium, and I am going with a band called My Vitriol. Fantastic. I'm almost emotional about talking about My Vitriol, just because you have unearthed something that's been lost to me for quite a long time. Right, and you you and I have both been fans of this band. We both went to see them at uni, as I'm sure we'll come on to later. I've listened to them, you know, reasonably regularly over the years. Sounds like you haven't. Uh, yeah, well, big fan, had the CD at some point, probably during a house move, CD has vanished or it was it's just got lost. And with the disappearance of the CD, which must have been a good 15 years ago, they've gone off my radar. So this is a bit like a time capsule of going back through the memories that this album evoked and the gig that we went to evoked. So this is this is awesome actually for me i mean for the listeners you probably don't give a crap but i think it's cool yeah so i should actually mention that the album we want to talk about is their debut album fine lines with the kind of blackened red orangey swooshiness it's a bit of a funny album cover it's, it's very in the style of the type of band that they were if that makes sense and i should talk about who the band were first do it so my vitriol are a british alternative new gaze and you gaze <laughs> it's a, so bad it's a term they coined themselves and i guess it stems from the fact that there was all the new metal and new rap and all that kind of stuff that was all emerging around the millennium and because they were very much fans of shoegaze and they've incorporated a lot of that sound into their sound they felt that it was something that was appropriate to them fair i don't know i always like we mentioned this on the jezebels episode when they called themselves what was it intense indie and it was like oh god <laughs> just stop it just let someone else think up a name for you but not that yeah exactly so they formed in 1999 they met in london Som Wardner, who is vocals and guitar, Ravi, I'm going to say this wrong, so apologies to anyone who actually knows how to pronounce Sri Lankan names, Kesavaram on drums. The other two that joined for the album that we're talking about are Seth Taylor on guitar and Carolyn Bannister on bass. But the formation is one of those classic two people meet at uni, get on, want to make music together. And Ravi and Som were those two, both of Sri Lankan origin. They met at UCL. They lived opposite each other in halls. And a year and a half after they'd met, they started playing together. Som Wardner had already been in another band that I'm guessing had broken up. I didn't read anything really that said what had happened there beyond 
that had finished and he was looking for something new right and these two started playing together they started recording music and really it was Kesavaram playing drums and Wardner playing pretty much everything else and they recorded Delusions of Grandeur which was their first EP release in two days with the two of them splitting everything that way awesome that then got picked up by Steve Lamack, who apparently was handed a copy at a gig. He played them on his session unsigned slot on Radio 1, and that led to them getting some level of attention and fame and signing to Infectious Records, and Fine Lines then followed on that label in 2001. Right, okay. So that's quite a kind of standard way of getting recognised. Band gets together at a university or a college, they kind of have a demo tape, gets out, get noticed, and suddenly they're into the big time. Right, but I think the very speedy nature of this happening over the course of months rather than a few years did put some stress on them. So Wardner says in a Soundsphere interview, after just seven months of being together, we began to attract a following. I feel like our experience of this process was probably different to a lot of bands. We were kind of thrown into the public eye. We'd only recorded in the studio a handful of times, and then we had a lot of pressure on us to perform, and it wasn't always a fun experience. There was so much stress involved with making that album that I couldn't even listen to it after we'd finished recording. After Fine Lines was released, I ended up in hospital. Wow, that's that's quite telling. And We've mentioned this a few times with artists. Kurt Cobain actually was one of them when he was talking about being interviewed in the very early early days of Nirvana. And his responses are like, well, we've literally just formed the band. You know, you're asking us about all of this like interesting information. <laughs> Give us some anecdotes. It's like, we've, we've just got together. We just recorded some stuff in a studio. And now you, you want to hear all the stories. There aren't any. We're, we're a new band. Yeah, exactly. And there's pressure that comes along with that. But also, I get the impression that that experience really jaded, particularly Wardner, in terms of his approach to the music industry and his opinion of music media and and everything that surrounds it. So he gets accused of arrogance. But reading interviews, it really feels like he's quite thoughtful and quite scornful of the industry generally. And that to me feels like that's the driving thing behind him getting that label because he's not easygoing and says what they want him to say and all that kind of stuff and slates the people that are involved. I can see people not liking that, not liking that he's refusing to play the game. Yeah, and definitely in in that time, you kind of had to get these big music magazines and the big industry cheeses on boards and you had to look the part we've said this again with a number of other other bands and if you don't fit the mold well mccluskey are an extreme example of that um (laughs) then you end up slightly ostracized almost yeah and i think there's a few things that play against them here not least of which was that their sound arrived at a time when it probably was too late for the first wave of that kind of sound and too early for the second or third or whatever wave we're on to now. Yeah, tell us a bit more about the sound. The first thing I should cover is probably the influences because that will give you an understanding of the elements that are coming in here. So they pull from quite an array of sound, but it's all rock orientated. My Bloody Valentine and Slow Dive are bringing Shoegaze. Foo Fighters Nirvana are bringing showmanship, big rock riffs and growling grunge guitars. And then you've got this almost 
the cure type angle that brings an emo-ish gothy edge to the vocals and the lyrics and there's even a bit of dave gilmore-esque guitar work thrown in for good measure yeah i'd go with that it does feel like a an amalgamation of lots of big bands and big styles rather right. than them going off and finding a new direction. And I guess in terms of what that actually means for the sound itself, well, the key elements of the My Vitriol sound are the wall of guitars. You know, it's that wall of noise, shoegaze approach to making music and recording records. You've then got quite often chugging rock guitar and bass with singing lead guitar over the top of that. And then... That's combined with acceleration and amplification of everything when they go into choruses or big moments in songs. Yeah, which, as the enemy delightfully described it, is genetically designed to give Steve Lamack an erection at 500 paces. It's giving me an erection right now. <laughs> Steady. <laughs> also, fuck the enemy, but we'll come on to them later. Yeah. It's also important to note their ability to have moments of clarity during songs. So a lot of shoegaze and a lot of big noisy rock bands don't necessarily have those moments where everything can almost just sit and sing together where everything's a bit more clear and pure and they do that really well at times in this album fuck i'm trying to remember the the shoegaze band that i went to see there was a shoegaze band i can't remember i went to see them i walked out of the gig furious because they didn't provide any of those moments of clarity they just it was just this kind of constant wall of fuzz and distortion and just sound and you just felt like you were just forever being on on tenterhooks god if i find the name of them i can do <laughs> rip them to pieces but i can't remember who they are so they get off on a pass right and a lot of shoegaze does that a little bit but they really lean into it in places in this album and it's it's something that i think sets them apart from some of their predecessors so yeah, that's one of their things of, like we say, it's that musical clarity and then just smashing the doors down moments later with another musical hurricane coming straight mm. in behind it. Yeah, We've sort of touched briefly on The Enemy because the reviews of this album were quite mixed when it came out. Mm -hmm. Enemy, I didn't actually pull any snippets of what they said in their review. They give it a three-star review and basically accused it of being dull, mediocre copying of other people and i was so furious that i refused to quote anything from it yeah yeah it's actually quite a funny just for a funny review but i think that's the point it's almost written in review just to be eye-catching and it's almost just soundbite after soundbite as if someone's gone i'm having more fun writing a smarmy review than i actually care about the music yeah it's pure snark and i don't like that because it smacks of laziness and disingenuous journalism well put it this way they say and I've, i'm looking at the review now they say here we find my vitriol completing their pretty decent actually debut album but surrounded that with everything saying it's an absolute shit show they've they've stolen all these musical ideas they're a, a waste of time it feels like someone who's listened to the album twice made their mind up that it's not the kind of music for them thank you very much and it's yeah. not the kind of music at the moment and just shat on it with all the cliches that they could find to, and just slightly balancing the argument a little bit i can see why if you're a fan of shoegazer and you're a fan of you know you say the foos and the other influences if you can hear all of those so easily and you like those styles of music you could say oh they've copied it or whatever but 
I don't buy that, but you could see how someone could think that. That was the opposite of the argument the enemy had, though. So Wardner actually said, we got accused by enemy of being too shoegaze because that was already over in their eyes. But then loads of artists followed after us with that sound and it started creeping into mainstream rock. And that's the thing. I think these guys were looking for all of those Bombay Bicycle Club type bands that were coming up that were great you know some really great bands there but it was a different style of music that they looked for and they wanted this stylistic chic fashionable next big thing that they could jump on that was going to go mainstream that they could then say was the enemies doing to get the mainstream and bands like My Vitriol were never going to be that band agree yeah, yes, you're spot on. They're, they're not going to lead a revolution with this kind of music. Right. Uh, anyway, Drowned in Sound gave it a perfect score, and I'm more on board with Drowned in Sound at this point in time than I am with The Enemy. <laughs> yeah. And also Chico Moreno of the Deftones was quoted as calling them the best band in the world. Whoa. That's actually, wow, that's punch. I mean, you know, Deftones, the <laughs> big old band. We've not really mentioned the Deftones ever, actually, in our, I think in this podcast. They were huge at school and I, they passed me by. But yeah, they still passed me by. They are a band that I feel like I don't know them well enough or was a big enough fan back then to ever do a podcast episode on them. So we need guests of some sorts to come in and do that for us. Yeah, the whole band of my vitriol are probably listening to this going switching this off now thinking fuck these guys they they, they don't know who the deftones are then we know who they are we just don't know don't really know well. we, <laughs> <laughs> we should dive into the actual album though because i think the music is something that really needs some highlighting and i say that deliberately because it's really hard to find the highlights of this album because it's all so good i'm glad you said that i was thinking i hadn't done my homework because i started kind of jumping through tracks to try and pick out ones that i like but in in some ways your point about shoegaze with this kind of this the sound continuing there's a theme running through all these songs and and so you kind of know you're listening to a my vitriol song and and in some ways it makes it harder to pick out individual tracks it's a great quote from Wardner to back you up on that as well. Okay. He said, with Fine Lines, I came at it with such a, we are going to create a holistic album approach. The whole thing was intended as a piece of art. The track ordering and every little detail was deliberate and thought through. Those who listen to our singles only get a small idea of what we're about. If you listen to our albums in their entirety, you get the full picture. Huh. So someone can buy me a beer for that one. <laughs> uh, anytime. He's, he's trying to make an album in the old school approach of this is a whole entire entity, which then makes a mockery of the fact that their record label released six singles off it because they were <laughs> desperately trying to flog as much money out of it as possible. Yeah, but that's record companies, isn't it? So. Exactly. We should start with Alpha Waves because it's the first track on the album and it really does introduce who they are as a band, what they're about, the style you can expect from the album. As we talked about, it's thematically and conceptually consistent and so you're always going to get this guitar noise and drums kick in and then you get a classic shoegaze shiny chiming lead guitar moment and it feels anthemic it feels like something that could be from a movie soundtrack this really does set the scene for the rest of the album it's the anticipation on this it's like you hear this it's starting and you kind of know that there's a bit of a a musical juggernaut coming along and it's just it, it builds up and for someone who knows the album quite well 
you kind of know where it's going and it's like, okay, is, this, there's tension there that's about to be released. Right. And you know where this is going and so do I, but the way it then gears down and drops gently before launching into the track that made them famous to the level of fame that they got, the track that's the big one off the album, the one that everyone knows, it's a brilliant launch into Always Your Way. Which is their best song. Um, it is. It's brilliant. It's a, a piece of anthemic indie music. And it's probably it's probably actually quite well known. I mean, I bet this appeared on all sorts of compilation CDs. It must mm-hmm. have been everywhere because whatever you think of them, this is a single stands up. Yep. But again, it's not like indie rock was or had been at least in the run-up to this. You've got more wall of shoegaze, guitar noise, big drumming. Drumming here as an instrument is not just keeping time. There are elements of early emo. So if you think Jimmy World with songs like A Praise Chorus, there's elements of that feel to it. Yep. And this song, it's the most iconic from the album. It's wonderful. At times it's like a chilled out festival summer day and other times it's flexing its muscles and punching you in the ears. Yeah, and throughout all of this, Som's voice is is kind of it soars over all of it, and it's 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 never too emotional. It's never too kind of strained. It just sits on top of the music and just holds it all together. I think it's it's really good vocals on this track. Well, it's got that slight detachment that you'd think of. I mean, the Cure's a great place to put that, but also if you think about bands like. New Order, Depeche Mode, those kind of 80s synth bands, that sort of slightly detached from the sound, slightly unemotional at times voice. And you're right, but it's a really beautiful voice as well. The way he delivers is really, really nice. Yeah, it it doesn't block out the music. So you do hear with some indie bands that the voice, if you don't like it, or if, if they've got the levels wrong, you can get artists who kind of are quite vocal heavy but this almost you you said this before when you said that you use voices as an instrument and this is a good example of it kind of almost harmonizing with all of the the sounds and just forming one collective whole yeah absolutely and something you said there has just triggered a thought that i hadn't even considered before we started talking which is the production on this the fact that you've got these massive walls of sound and yet his voice isn't buried is very deliberate the way they've done that and it's really, really well balanced. Yeah, production on this album is fantastic. Yeah, I genuinely had never considered that element to it, but it is It's really, really good because a band that is so vibrant and alive when you see them live, often it doesn't matter that things are a bit stodgy or a bit lost in shitty venue speakers or the mix isn't quite right or whatever because you're getting so much energy from the band and then you can hear those bands sometimes on record and you're let down because everything's a bit flat but that's not the case here yeah and the tension that i mentioned before is the same tension that you feel at a gig when you know when when we saw them that's the that that feeling's the same yeah right let's move on the gentle art of choking I mean, what great, <laughs> what a great song name for starters. This is crunching industrial guitars, almost immediately getting swamped by melodic guitars and drumming. 
it's another monster opening and this has a very foo fighties feel to it which i obviously can't hate foo fighties this did i say foo fighties you said foo fighties <laughs> a very foo fighter feel to it yeah that is a bit of a tongue twister but yeah i i can't get past the title of this one but this this is a great example of this album kind of flowing along and you can kind of hear the the themes from the first two songs just just carrying on into yep. in, into this third song yeah and it's difficult with this album i mentioned earlier that finding highlights is hard because everything everything feels great it doesn't ever feel like there's filler mm. and even things like Coldstream, which comes next which is only what 30 seconds ish long is a link between the previous song and then dropping into cemented shoes yeah there are instrumentals peppered through this album and yeah. they don't sound like filler they do sound like proper bridging songs where you've just got a bit of a lull or a, just something a little bit different and as you say taking this album as a whole they're all worthy songs and they're all part of the album yeah a cemented shoes definitely deserves a mention yeah. the anxiety in here that's driven by the minor key opening and then that flip between minor key to major key and back to minor key again is really really nice it, it feels like this like you say there's tension that you've mentioned before but then that release with the major key and then pulling it back to a minor key and then the scream and shredded guitars around the 220 mark that starts to kick in is just wonderful yeah they're very good at having these kind of serene moments in the middle of songs like these little islands where you, you can take a breath that's okay and it's it's actually it's different to the quiet loud stuff that we talk about with pixies and with nirvana and with a bunch of other bands it's not so much a noisy bit then a quiet bit it's almost like the, the accelerator's been eased up and you can slow down a little bit but you don't get this harsh transition into the the noisier part of the song it just it's just there it builds up quickly but it doesn't feel like it's a jarring experience it's almost like a flow from yeah. quiet to loud sections yeah. it's more like classical music in the way that would flow from a quieter to a swelling part that's a great shout actually I'd, I'd not thought about that but the way that it moves between different themes in a song i don't think they'd ever say they're classically influenced <laughs> but that Probably sound not. i guess it's when you've got a, an orchestra with say a bunch of strings and you can build a sound they do that through their style of music it's quite a full sound and you can create a similar yeah almost orchestral feel just with this bunch of again this is down to the the composition um and, and the recording right yeah because in an orchestra you might have those quiet underpinnings with the strings and then you have something like a woodwind section punching through that with something that swirls and brings everything up yeah anyway let's let's stop getting too pretentious <laughs> yeah you mentioned quieter moments infantile is a quieter moment in the album as a whole and i really like the sinister almost whispered lyrics here yeah i'm, I'm a big fan of the way that there's not a vocal range but there's a kind of tonal range with the voice and he doesn't over egg it he's not your kind of poser front man musician who's doing all sorts and pinging around the stage and trying to to show off this is a, a musician who's got a clear vision of a sound and he'll go quiet when he needs to but it, it doesn't seem pretentious yeah and we have to touch on the next track oh to the red queen absolutely belter <laughs> this 
feels like a real high point of the album sort of about halfway through and i don't know why i love this quite so much it is something that i can't quite put my finger on i don't know whether it's maybe that it just is one of the most my vitriol tracks on the album if that makes sense i was thinking the same thing actually and and you kind of stolen my um my (laughs) argument I, i think i think it's as simple as that it's just very good my vitriol it's when you listen to it on its own it is quite hard to pin down but in the middle of an album it just it does stand out like a little kind of pinnacle in the middle it's 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 good yeah it's everything we've mentioned before so more big howling guitars more wall of noise thumping drums the detached almost otherworldly vocals that are sort of just floating above all of this chaos it's wonderful it's a really really brilliant track yeah i was going to move later on in the album at this point and go to losing touch yes so a couple more contemplative tracks in between red queen and this yeah well because i mentioned taprobane um earlier mm. and i thought it was actually another song in the album i thought it was pieces because i hadn't heard this for so long <laughs> it said listen to taprobane then we put it on and you said it sounds like well yeah this is the one that has that dave gilmore guitar in yeah about halfway through sounds like something that could be lifted almost from one of the tracks on wish you were here yeah uh, and it, and and you said it straight away and i was like what and suddenly you listen to it and it really is i mean he's he's captured that gilmore sounds quite well it's the yeah there's it's something the sustains, about yeah the sustains and the just the reverb that's on it and the the bending the notes in the way that feels very gilmore-esque yeah, but yeah, then it moves into losing touch. See, now we're just going to put the entire album on the playlist. Yeah, well, you know, um, <laughs> well, I guess this is the point. I mean, they, they've not really done much after this. No, that's true. Did you want to talk about Pieces? Because I know that's another one of your favourites. Listen to Pieces. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Fair enough. Going quickly into losing touch, this one's almost a feeder-like track, and I love feeder, so I love this track. I mean, we've already said it's so hard to pull out individual tracks because it's designed as an album and it's something that's almost been lost in a lot of places these days is particularly in the mainstream musicians are looking for the thing that's going to get them the attention the clicks the likes the replayed over and over and over again track on spotify the art of the album is still out there but it's less mainstream than it's ever been yeah there are still a huge chunk of musicians who who would appreciate that but I think they're probably fighting a battle against the clicky, instant sound crowd. The problem that you've got nowadays is that you've got TikTok and venues like that where you're only going to hear five seconds of music. Right. So you have to make that awesome ear-catching five seconds. And if you don't make that, so you, you try and sling a My Vitriol track into onto a TikTok <laughs> video. I mean, that's just not going to work. I can imagine that has never been done. Should we try it? I haven't got a TikTok account. I, re- I don't refuse to get a TikTok account. I know that it's it's not for me. No. It's not for the likes of me. I am not their target audience. They don't want me on their platform scaring the kids away. Are you sure the, um, the independent craft breweries of Bristol would be impressed if you started TikToking beer pouring? I think craft breweries have TikTok accounts and they use them for promotion, but I have no interest in getting involved in it. 
No, enough said. Let's move right. on quickly before. <laughs> well, you you briefly touched on this. The fact that they've not really done anything since. Well, they have. They re-released this album in two thousand and two because we're back in the era of you release an album and it doesn't do anything, so you ignore it, or it gets really big. And then the record company immediately re-releases it a year later after loads of fans have bought it with two extra tracks so that you'll go out and buy that re-release of the album, which of course nobody does. Yeah, they'll put a, like a nice cardboard box cover over it and oh, then yes. charge like an extra five quid. Oh, I'd forgotten the cardboard cover. Yes, of course. <laughs> Don't forget that. <laughs> Special, right? Yeah. So Wardner talks about this and it's interesting to see his perspective on it so they released an album in 2017 called secret sessions and i sort of semi-ignored it because it was pitched as this uh like off cuts and reworking of things and b-sides and things like that stuff that they'd written and recorded but not released rather than a, a new album and so i didn't really pay much attention to it and the way wardner talks about it is he says I was a music fanatic, still am, but as I've grown up, I've realised that living purely in the music world and the music industry can make you pretty miserable. For the sake of my happiness and my sanity, I had to step away, hence the hiatus. Fair play. So, yeah, absolutely. Acknowledging your own limitations and the fact that you need to prioritise your own health and well-being at times is, is key. But it's a long old break, and it sort of riled up a lot of their cult fan following, they ran a crowdfunding campaign basically on one of the music self-funding websites that that cropped up over the years to do this kind of stuff i can't remember the exact one that they used but they dropped that campaign and it took about four years from them starting that campaign for the album to actually be delivered and there's a lot of fans that put money in early on complaining about yeah. oh, When's this going to appear? Blah, blah, blah. Lots of stuff on social media. Wardner seems to have got into like little mini spats with fans on social media about how slow it's taking to get it released. They said themselves that in all the time, only something like eight people asked for their money back and anyone could have at any point in time. Right. It feels like it was more of a frustration from fans who were desperate to hear something new more than people being pissed off that they weren't getting their money's worth or whatever. Yeah. And there's also an element in here of Wardner's perfectionism seems to have impacted the timing of this and also his mental health. So at the time he'd said, our new album is just for people that emailed us over the last 10 years saying, please come back. It wasn't meant to be a public exercise. We wanted to do some justice to the demos we've made since the last record. So we tidied them up for the people who supported us. And that again seemed to rile up people who are expecting a new album yeah and i think part of the problem with it is it's not bad i've been listening to it a bunch over the last day or so and it's genuinely good in places but it feels really disjointed whereas the previous album thematically hung together brilliantly this one's a bit all over the place because they've clearly pulled in bits and pieces from various different points in time from things where they've been working with different people because you know the original band members I've mentioned have come and gone over the years and they've got new people come in and you can imagine trying to work in a band like that where you've got one album that was released back at the start of the millennium and you're now mid 2010s 
trying to get something new released with a guy who's a perfectionist and really just desperately wants to get it right for the fans. Yeah. yeah. And for himself, I guess. I think partly I'd idolised the debut so much that anything released this far beyond it was always going to be difficult sure. to to love immediately. Yeah, that I makes sense. I don't know if you've listened to it. No, I haven't. Recommendations for tracks? Yeah, I really like If Only in brackets, God Only Knows, and The Agonies and The Ecstasies because they're heavy old school rock. Wow, calling a track God Only Knows is a punchy <laughs> one, isn't it? It's, it's, it's in parentheses. <laughs> but the problem is that those are peppered in amongst lighter weight stuff and slightly odd stuff and stuff that sounds a bit like sub keen which isn't great wow that's harsh it's what it sounds like to me yeah. and i liked keen back in the day when they very first started i've still got their set list yeah <laughs> yeah it just it's sad to me that this is a band who clearly have talent clearly have capabilities probably could have been really really big if they'd continued to release albums two or three years apart and continue to grow from that initial cult following it's just a shame that almost their own perfectionism and their own desire to get it just right and unwillingness to play the game has meant that they've just disappeared from the public eye tricky yeah but they wouldn't be the first musician straight perfectionist that has uh, graced the airwaves i mean it's quite a, quite a common thing yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing is that this is just one of those bands that I found in a really formative time of my, my music listening that if they had continued to get bigger, you know, they, they're in an era where Muse were doing similar big operatic rock music. They could easily have been part of that story. Yeah, yeah, I agree. We should talk about them live. Yeah, well, yeah, this is... um you've mentioned formative this is about as formative as it gets for me because they're actually my first gig which is weird because i've been listening to live music for a long time but that's all been festival based right so this was the first time i went to a music venue to see a specific band that weren't like a pub band or whatever right and funnily enough i realized when i was looking at the gig date for this this is formative for us and our friendship correct this might well have been the first time we ever met i think it probably is right so this was late october in 2001 so we'd been at university for only what four weeks at this point yep and our mutual friend loz who's been mentioned multiple times on this podcast he and i had talked about going to this had agreed to go and i think at the same time he'd been talking to you about going to this so we all went down and met at the union to go to the Anson Rooms, which is Bristol University's own gig venue. Yep. What do you remember of this gig? I blew me away. I remember the the sound being really good for the mm -hmm. Anson Rooms, which is weird because the Anson Rooms is not very good at doing sound. I think there's a nuance there. The Anson Rooms is terrible at doing sound for support acts. They're actually pretty good for getting it right for the main event. Okay, that's fair. And for these guys, again, I think you didn't need to get it spot on for them to blow you away. But you're right, they absolutely did. My abiding memory of this gig is before these guys had even stepped on stage, the lights went down and the lights on the stage came up and loads of smoke was swirling around on the yeah, stage. Yeah. 
and there was just this wall of howling guitar noise that came out as they started everything up and came out onto stage and it was it was unbelievable i'd not seen anything like that before well you mentioned the um all the way through this chat you talked about these kind of soaring guitars i just remember they'd nailed the sound on these really the, the high end of these um of these sounds so that whoever was on the mixing desk that night nailed it and i just remember once the gig had finished just walking back through the kind of dark streets of bristol with just these sounds filling my head just going wow that's that's what live music is yeah it's brilliant and if, if the band are out there or have disbanded and are thinking oh looking back on on those days when you played the answer rooms thank you guys because that's really just a proper proper memory yeah one other live appearance that i have to talk about is they appeared on top of the pops okay with always your way obviously and some wore a one hit wonder t-shirt that looked very very homemade brilliant that's uh yeah i wonder whether he saw that coming and just thought <laughs> it is funny because if that was a poke at pop band one hit wonders <laughs> rather <laughs> unfortunate one to do that yeah i don't know that one gig was was pretty special right well i went back and looked at the top of the pops thing and apparently the drummer broke a skin during the performance which they did live they didn't actually mime it because someone asked them do you think you should have mimed on top of the pops and they were like no of course not but he, he broke a drum skin you wouldn't know it from the performance can't spot it can't spot when it happens doesn't seem to affect how well they sound and how well they come across yeah i i've only based it on one live performance but yeah d definitely formative yeah what about so i guess influences i've talked about a number of bands that i thought were formative in getting me to like shoegaze and at the time i think i'd forgotten about my vitriol these guys are incredibly important in the early stages of me really really getting my head around that idea of a wall of guitar sound both being almost all-encompassing but also having guitars cutting through it and creating those melodies and and i love it for that and it, it absolutely has brought me over the years back to the slow dives and the my bloody valentines of the world cool yeah how about you uh the gigging experience i think just knowing walking back from that evening thinking there's something <laughs> there's a step up from listening to a band on a speaker in your home and yeah. listening to a live band and from that moment going we need to do this a lot more and it it's happened because yeah. we've done it a lot more absolutely i do also think that drumming is one of the key things here so drums being used as an instrument not just to keep time so it would have been these guys foo fighters nirvana that really pushed the envelope of me loving drums being part of the music not just being something that keeps time yeah, no, that's that's fair too. Because it's not always clean in here. It's not always perfect, but it's always brilliant. Yeah. I was going to try and tie in something about Always Your Way, but i not <laughs> quite there. Blame the 9.5% beer. And yeah, maybe that's the problem. You've had both too much beer and not enough for that kind of comment. <laughs> yeah, so close, but yeah, so far. Oh, well, maybe on another podcast, I'll, I'll nail a little last minute pun. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's been a fun one and I'm, delighted that it's one that we both love because yeah. 
they are brilliant and they do deserve more love. I'm just sad that they were never as, as big as they could have been. Yeah, well, they're big enough in our eyes, so that'll do. Yeah, and if you don't know them, go listen. Go listen now. Go listen. All right, thanks everyone for joining us this week. We will see you soon. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of I Might Be Wrong. 